Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. It has been called the original sin of America, and 240 years later, the issue of race still animates a significant portion of political and social discourse in this country. A nation founded on the idea of all men being created equal has as its corresponding co-founding principles slavery, racial violence, and inequality. The symbols are everywhere, Birmingham, Selma, Ferguson, and even Los Angeles. They've become whistle stops on the road to more violence and inequality. Add to this Forsyth County, Georgia, in 1912. This is where my guest Patrick Phillips takes us in his book, Blood at the Root. Patrick Phillips is an award-winning poet, translator, and professor. He's a Guggenheim and NEA fellow. His previous book, Elegy for a Broken Machine, was a finalist for the National Book Award. And it is my pleasure to welcome Patrick Phillips here to talk about Blood at the Root, a racial cleansing in America. Patrick, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me on, Jeff. I really appreciate it. It's great to have you here. First of all, tell us uh, about Forsyth County, Georgia. What kind of place is it? Uh, You know, these days it's a part of suburban Atlanta. It's a county of about 200,000 people, 30 miles north of the state capital of Atlanta. And, uh, you know, it started out in 1912 as a place with about 12,000 residents. And when I grew up there in the 1970s and 80s, it was it was still very small, about 30,000 people at the time. And when you grew up there in the 70s and 80s, it was still pretty strong racial prejudice. The racial problems that, that we'll talk about were still very much prominent in that community. Yeah, that's absolutely right. You know, it was still what it was called a, a quote-unquote white county when I my parents moved there in 1977. It was a place where, you know, if a truck driver or a UPS delivery guy, anybody uh, who was African-American was seen in the county, they were liable to be attacked. They People avoided it at almost all costs. And, you know, we were used to this notion that uh, there were people who would defend the racial ban at the county line. And what was it like for a young person growing up in that environment? You know, it was very strange at first. I only learned the story. I was seven years old, so I started school in second grade in 1977 at Cumming Elementary. And, you know, I had grown up in suburban Atlanta, and I just noticed that there were no people of color anywhere in the county. And my friends all almost across the board used the N-word to refer to black people. And so I, I noticed all of this and asked about what was going on and why there were no black people around and why everyone seemed to be so full of hatred, particularly when it was an all-white place. And, you know, I came to understand that there was this violence in the history of the county and was told that, you know, a long, long time ago was how the kids said there had been this uh, cleansing of the county and all the black people had been run out. And was that hatred, was that resentment still there in some of the young people in the community? Yeah, very much so. There were, you know, a lot of the people who I went to school with were from some of the old families in the county. And many of them had never encountered anybody of color. It was something that was very alien to them, and they were full of paranoia and fear about it. And if they ever went to Atlanta, a lot of them were very frightened by that whole idea of going to a place that was integrated. And so, yeah, one of the things I got interested in in the book was the ways in which this was passed along generation to generation, because the, the racial ban really lasted into the early 90s. And, yeah, I got very interested in the in how that was possible because it took a tremendous amount of energy and it did take a kind of passing along from generation to generation for this to be maintained. Talk a little more about that. What did you begin to find about the way this was passed on from parents to children and, and then again? Well, it, there was nothing unusual about violence in 1912 in Jim Crow, Georgia. 
So this was something that happened in a lot of counties, and I was raised with a lot of stories where people who were ever confronted about Forsyth's really complicated racial history would say, well, that was just the way it was in those days. It happened everywhere. And it's true that when I looked in the research, you know, in the archives, a lot of places experienced waves of this kind of violence in, an, in the Jim Crow era. What was unique about Forsyth is that they really succeeded. And so anybody who was moderate or who was opposed to the purge from the white community, a lot of those people left. Anybody else who was opposed learned to keep quiet about it. There was a lot of fear in the white community. And then it became this closed environment as far as race goes. And so people in the county, a lot of people in the county had very little experience with, with African-Americans and they came to, you know, build up this paranoia and this fear of what would happen. And they came to regard it as a real threat to their whole way of life. if the county integrated in the, in the eighties. There was a lot of tension came to this when Oprah Winfrey came to Forsyth and did a show in the 1980s. And people on that show said, you know, we've chosen to live here because we want to get away from them. Did you get a sense in, in your research and you're talking to people about this that this was something that really could ever find an endpoint, that it seems so woven into the DNA of place, maybe in a more powerful way in a place like Forsyth, but, but in other places as well, maybe to a lesser degree? Yeah, you know, the, the, the real flashpoint came in 1987 when there was a group of, the, the closest I experienced of people trying to fight back against this and trying to speak out against the violence and the intimidation was a march that happened. My family were part of this march in 1987. And a very small group of about 70 civil rights activists, including a lot of people from the King Center in Atlanta, and a handful of locals like my mother, my father, my sister, marched to celebrate the, the Martin Luther King national holiday and to protest the 75th anniversary of this purge. And they were met by a mob of people throwing rocks and bottles and chanting racist slurs. And they were really repelled, and the march was stopped. And so at that moment, you know, I got very pessimistic about the chances of changing this from within. And I, got, I was very interested in trying to discover how it did ultimately start to give way. And really, it was demographic. You know, the county is 200,000 people now versus 30,000 in 1987. And it's become integrated largely from new arrivals and people coming from outside. Yeah, I talked to an older African-American man who just who told me, he said, this this will only change when those people are gone and their kids will be different. Mm -hmm. And I think at a certain point, as they've gotten more experience with now, today, the county is 10 percent Latino, 8 percent Asian and about 3 percent African-American. So now there are people growing up there who have an experience of a multicultural environment. And go back to 1912 and talk a little bit about what happened in the fall of 1912 there. There was a young white woman was found beaten and unconscious in the woods, and it was actually just a few miles from the house where I grew up, though I didn't, I didn't know that when I was growing up there. I've learned some of this in my research. And she was found in the woods, and the story that spread like wildfire was that she had been attacked by a black rapist. And about two weeks later, she died of her injuries, and on the night of her funeral, the very first waves of night riding started and bands of white men gathered and they rode out and used arson, dynamite, shotguns, and, you know, wanted to really perpetuate this wave of terror. It was, a, it was a terror campaign against the white community. A young black man was lynched for her murder and two young teenage boys were put on trial. And after a one day trial, they were sentenced to hang and they were then hung in a very, 
festive, almost country fair atmosphere just outside of town. So all of that violence that was related to the crime was then followed by just generalized violence meant to punish the entire black community for this. And the violence that followed, the cleansing of the community, tell us a little bit about that. It, it really unfolded over two months between September and October of 1912. The very first places that they targeted, according to newspaper accounts, were the black churches in the county. And that was highly effective. They burned, I think the, the mayor of the county reported that five churches had been, he wrote a letter to the governor saying that five churches had been burned in the past few weeks. And that was a really effective way to terrorize people in that the black churches were really the heart of the community. Burning them made this blazing sign for everyone to see, and it left just, you know, bubble and ashes if anyone tried to come back. And soon thereafter, they started targeting black homes, and they issued warnings and said, you know, you have 24 hours to get out or a week to get out. And at a certain point, if, if someone tried to resist, then there was gunfire and, and, you know, men with torches and kerosene. So that, that kind of violence really spread in September. And then pretty soon, these were largely poor sharecroppers. There were some educated people and, and more well-off people in the black community. But a lot of these were very marginal, poor people in the first place. And it only took a few weeks of that before there was a general exodus out of the county. Some were able, as you talk about, some were able to sell their property, but most just left it behind. Yeah, that is that was a very vexed issue in 1987. The state attorney general looked into that uh, after this violent episode in 87, and there was, there was for the first time some real interest in the black community that had once lived in Forsyth. And a few things happened. There were people who didn't own anything who simply packed up and left. There were people who owned property and managed to sell, usually at very depressed prices and, you know, really under duress. And then there were also people who simply walked away. And it was a very gradual process, but often over the course of the following decade or so, those lots have a tendency to show up in other transactions. And often there's no record of any sale at all for the black-owned property. It was simply not really eligible for sale, but was approved anyway by the county clerk. So, you know, in the book, I talk about how it was really with a wink and a nod. I had always imagined that this took place at gunpoint and in a much more dramatic fashion. But I think that the land that was owned by black property owners often moved into white hands just very gradually and very quietly with a, you know, a bureaucratic transaction at the courthouse. Mm -hmm. To what extent did word of this and knowledge of this spread in, into a larger area, and what was the reaction when it did? It, in 1912, it made headlines as far away as in the New York Times. There were reports in the Times about this. It made headlines in newspapers all over the country, and especially in the Atlanta papers, like the Atlanta Journal and the Atlanta Constitution. There were calls to stop it. There were a lot of prominent citizens in the county. One of the things I had imagined was that this was a really like a monolithic movement by the white community to expel their black neighbors. In reality, I found a more complicated picture. There were people who were opposed to it. The mayor of the town tried hard. The, the deputy, the, the sheriff of the town was a future Klansman and very much a part of the problem. The deputy, his deputy tried to save the man who was lynched and tried to work against it. But ultimately, they called for the governor. They called for the federal court of the Southeast, you know, the, the Eastern Circuit of the Federal Courts in Georgia. They called for help from them. And again and again, they got an answer that said, this is a local matter. 
This is something for the local sheriff and the local people to work out on their own. Talk a little bit about the black community and their sense of place both before this incident and really what happened after. Yeah, but, you know, I had I had envisioned a black community that um, was only you know very marginally rooted in the county. Then this is when I said envision that. This is when I was a child there hearing this mythic story. What I found when I looked into the archives was that was a community much more ingrained in the social fabric of the county. There were there were these thriving black churches. There were very educated ministers. Many of them had close ties to white clergy members. I found lots of evidence of you know, white, white people in the community going to black congregations, and there are some minutes from church meetings where they say thank you to our, to our white friends who made donations this afternoon. And there were merchants, there were tradespeople like blacksmiths. So all in all, I had been told a story that made this seem much less dramatic and much less like people expelling their own neighbors and people they had known and worked with all their lives. So that was really glossed over. But in the archives, there's no question. It tells a very clear story. This was neighbor against neighbor. These were people who were who were often expelling men and women and children who they were very, very familiar with and who they had really, you know, they had lived alongside in this community for a very long time. Were the racial tensions already building in the community if it hadn't been this particular incident? Would it have been something else? Well, that's a good question, and I certainly find some sources of attention long before May, the woman who was found murdered in the woods was named May Crow. And again, the myth and the legend usually implies that absent that crime against May Crow, this never would have happened. It's often portrayed, and this includes in the contemporary papers, where it was portrayed as this unfortunate response to a very violent act. And I don't really think that holds water. The week before May Crow's body was found, another woman named Ellen Grice told people, she told the county sheriff that she had, quote, awakened and found a Negro man in her bed. And, you know, this is something that is very hard to know exactly what the real event was behind it. But, of course, one explanation for that is that she had a black lover and was discovered with him. And that's something that, you know, uh, African-American intellectuals like Ida B. Wells had been talking about that since the 19th century, that often this is this was what rape accusations really referred to. So there's no way to know for sure about that. But when I, when Ellen Grice claimed to have found a black rapist in her bed, there was a beating on the town square just a week before Ellen Grice's body was found. So this had all been brewing. You know, Forsyth is a place where there was a lot of resistance to emancipation in, in the 1870s. I looked at Freedmen's Bureau records from the Federal Freedmen's Bureau, and there's just case after case of white property owners in the county, like in, in a lot of places in the South, really objecting to emancipation in principle and not wanting to pay their black laborers. So, you know, it's, it's far too simple to chalk this up to one event in over one weekend in, in the fall of 1912. But it definitely, there was a flashpoint then and, and a really extraordinary longevity to this purge compared to other places. And was there ever any information about what really happened as far as Macro was concerned? That's a tough one. I, I've looked at everything and it, you know, this is, this is one of the frustrations about doing historical work. It would be, it would have been amazing to have solved the crime. You know, that, that's not, it's not that clear cut and it's not that simple. What I can say with certainty is that the two boys who were hung for her, who were convicted and hung for her murder, a 16 year old named Ernest Knox and an 18 year old named Oscar Daniel, there's no question their trials 
would not stand up to scrutiny at all today. Ernest Knox confessed, quote-unquote confessed, while in the midst of a mock lynching. So somebody, a, a white man, had wrapped a, a bucket rope from a well around his throat and was holding him over an open well, and that's the moment when he supposedly confessed. And, you know, today we would call that torture, and any testimony from a moment like that would not, would not stand up in a court of law. Oscar Daniel maintained his innocence throughout the whole thing, and so they were convicted in a trial that where the judge himself led a lynching in 1915, the lynching, a famous lynching of Leo Frank in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. The sheriff in the county was a Klansman. Two of the jurors were future Klansmen. So I did not, I was not able to, to determine exactly what happened to May Crow, but the story that I was told and that's been passed down for a hundred years, there's no question. It there seems very little to suggest that these two boys got a fair trial. And it, it, it's, you know, at least in my opinion, it seems very difficult to, to believe that they did this. What did you learn in, in your research about just the whole idea of ethnic cleansing in America and the history of it? Well, you know, it's very, it's very troubling to me right now because, on the one hand, people in Forsyth are very adamant that that was the old days and that this is over, and there are a lot of people who are very defensive about this story being told about their community, and I, I understand that. And a lot of them, their response is to say, that's, why are you dredging up the past? This is all ancient history. At the same time, I look at the headlines of this week and the response in America to uh, you know, violence perpetrated. This was a case in Forsyth of violence perpetrated, believed to have been perpetrated by two black boys, which then is you know, expanded to a punishment on the entire community. And I don't think it's much of a leap to see that happening with the Islamophobia that is very prominent in our public discourse in America, xenophobia about immigration. And so, you know, I, I guess I, I became much more aware of the possibilities of this and the ways that, um, you know, the ways that people's fear can lead even good people to do some very frightening things. Patrick Phillips, his book is Blood at the Root, A Racial Cleansing in America. Patrick, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Hey, thank you so much, Jeff. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you.